I'd like to begin this morning by looking at a verse in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Hebrews 12, 28. Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. We notice the word receiving here, I-N-G. He speaks about a kingdom that we are receiving, not looking to receive, that may be out in the future, but something that we are presently experiencing. When the Lord Jesus Christ was here, the Jewish people expected when the Messiah came that he would restore a kingdom back to the nation of Israel. We look in the book of Luke chapter 17, verse 20, it says, And the Pharisees demanded of Jesus when the kingdom of God should come. Now this came from the Pharisees. I'll come back to that, Lord willing, a little bit later for his answer. In the book of Acts, in chapter 1, we find where the Lord is speaking to his disciples just before leaving this earth. Now he's been crucified and buried, raised from the dead. He spent 40 days upon the face of the earth. And now he's about to ascend into glory. And he has some final words to say to them. It says, when they had gathered together, they asked him the question, Wilt thou restore again the kingdom to Israel? Even at this point, this is on the mind of the disciples. Now, a kingdom came during the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it was totally unlike anything that the Jewish people were expecting or looking for. Even today, people are expecting the Lord when he comes again. Some take the position that he'll come again and there'll be a rapture. And he will take some to heaven and then he's going to establish a kingdom here on this earth in Jerusalem where he will establish his throne and sit upon that throne. Now, sometimes I don't know where people get all these thoughts, you know, that they come up with. Um, mainly, I guess, we're taking Scripture actually out of context and not studying the context. And one rule of Bible study is, well, no matter what subject you're on, don't form a, an opinion or a position till you see what the Bible from Genesis Revelation has to say about it. Now, when the Lord Jesus Christ came, he had a message. And that message is found in Matthew 4, 17. Here are the words of the Lord. He said, repent and believe the gospel, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These were the first words to come from the lips of John the Baptist. In Matthew 3, 2, John spoke and said, Repent, and he's speaking to the Jewish people. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now the expression is at hand means something is close by. Close by in terms of distance, but close by in terms of time. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom had been prophesied hundreds of years before to come. So let's take a look at that this morning. Let's go back to the book of Daniel in chapter 2. And we find in verse 44 where Daniel says, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven establish a kingdom that shall consume all other kingdoms, and it shall last forever. It shall endure forever. Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and Daniel interpreted it. And in this dream, we find where the king sees himself, and he's got a head of fine gold, and he's got a, a breast and his arms of silver, and his thigh 
uh, and his vesture is of brass. His legs are of iron, and his feet made it part of iron and part of clay. But we also see that there was a stone cut out of the mountain without hands. Now, normally a stone is not cut out of the mountain without hands. You have to use your hands to cut a stone out of the mountain. But this shows this is supernatural. This shows this is divine. It says this stone shall dash against the feet of this great image, and all these kingdoms shall be destroyed. Now, you know, when you play football, if you take somebody's feet out, the swim of the ball, and you take their feet out, they're going to come down. They're going to come down, so that they teach you that. And so this stone here, the sudden consideration, is going to dash against the feet, made up part clay and part, um, uh, part uh, clay and iron, and the entire image is going to come down. Now, he goes on and explains that image unto King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, you're the head of gold, but after you're gone, Men don't like to hear that. But after you're gone, he says, another kingdom inferior to your kingdom shall arise. That was the Medes-Persian kingdom. He said, now after that kingdom is gone, there will be the Grecian kingdom. And after that kingdom is gone, there will be the Roman Empire. It was the Roman Empire that was ruling and reigning on the earth during the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. He then brings back to our attention that stone that was cut out of the mountain with hands. He says, this stone shall consume all these kingdoms, and it shall be an everlasting kingdom. Notice the difference between these kingdoms, these earthly kingdoms, and the kingdom of the Lord. So the kingdom was prophesied to come. Now, a kingdom must have a king, I'd say, wouldn't you? A kingdom and a king go together. And before we start talking a little bit more about the kingdom, I want to talk to you about the king just a minute here. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 32, verse 1, the prophet Isaiah says, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. A king, this king's consideration here, shall rule in righteousness. I don't know of a single man who's ever ruled on this earth that that can be said of other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Most leaders are, have become leaders due to corruption. Then they reign in corruption, but not this one. He said, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness. Everything this king does will be right. He'll be clothed in righteousness. He will rule in righteousness. And princes shall rule in judgment, which I believe is pointing us to the, the apostles themselves. And a man shall be as a hiding place from the wind, as a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry land, as a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Now, that's always been a comforting portion of Scripture to me. A man should be as a hiding place. I don't know of any man on this earth that could be the hiding place that's under consideration other than the Son of God. And a man should be as a hiding place what, from the wind, the winds of adversity and opposition. A man should be as a hiding place from the wind, as a, as a covert from the tempest. The word tempest meaning storm. As rivers of water in a dry land, apart from the Word of God and God's church. I'm telling you, this is a dry place to live here in this world, isn't it? Rivers of water, not just trickles of water, but rivers of water in a dry place as a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. We're in a weary land, but we got a great rock that we can set under the shadow of this great rock and receive great benefits from, you see. Zechariah 9.9, he says, Rejoice, O Jerusalem, 
and shout, O Zion. Now what he's about to say, he says, is going to cause you to rejoice and shout. Picture that in your mind. Rejoice, O Jerusalem, and shout, O Zion, for thy king cometh. He says he's just in having salvation. He's just from the standpoint of being sinless and perfect and holy and righteous. He's just, and he has salvation. No other one has salvation. He's just and has salvation, he says. But now notice this. He's come riding upon an ass, the colt, the fold of an ass. That seems a little out of place, doesn't it? Isn't that a poor man's travel? Isn't that a common man's travel? But this king is going to come riding upon an ass, the colt, the fold of an ass. That's totally different than any earthly king would ever do. Earthly king would not come riding like that. He will have the very finest animal to ride upon, the very finest horse, the most beautiful horse, a white horse, a strong horse, whatever. It shall be the horse of horses, you might say, that he would be riding in to Jerusalem, not upon an ass, a colt, the fold of an ass. You see, there's a lot of things different about this king, about this kingdom, than what most people consider and think about. Over here in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says, now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the all-wise God, to him be glory and praise forever. Unto the king, what? Eternal. This king's eternal. He's the only one that this possibly can be spoken about. All other kings have lived and died, but not this one. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, he cannot die, the the all-wise God, To him be glory and praise and honor forever. Then we come to the sixth chapter of 1 Timothy. Look at verse 17, 16, 17. He says, Blessed is he that cometh, who is the only potentate. So anytime this word is used, it's spelled with a capital P. The only potentate means he's supreme, he's omnipotent, he has all power. The only potentate that dwelleth in the light of immortality, that no man can dwell in. Now, isn't this a beautiful description of your great king here? These thoughts to me are very precious thoughts. Dwelling in the light that no man can approach to, whose eyes have not seen. We're not talking about an earthly man, an earthly king. We're talking about King Jesus. Come to Revelation chapter 19. We read about heaven opening up. And John saw a great white horse. Now, it's no longer the colt, the fold of an ass. Now, it is the great white horse. And it says, he had a name, Faithful and True. Both spelled with capital letters. Faithful and True. It says, on his head were many crowns. Normally, a king wears one crown. This king wears many crowns. Because he's obtained many victories. He has great success. He obtained a victory over sin, victory over death, over the grave, over the devil, over this world. He wears a crown for all of those. He's got a vesture that's dipped in blood. And he has a name. It's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. I love these pictures of our king, both in the Old Testament and also here in the New Testament. Now, it's this king that's going to establish a kingdom. Now, like in all subjects... There's an eternal and also a timely phase to subjects. Now there's, a, there's an eternal kingdom. 
We look in Matthew chapter 25 and we have a picture of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find the Lord coming as a king and also a shepherd here. Now as a shepherd, he should divide his sheep from the goats to put his sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left. But then it says, but then the king saith unto them, Come, you blessed my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. A prepared kingdom for a prepared people. Those people on the right hand side are referred to as sheep. They're God's people. They're his children. And they've been, they've been prepared. Have you ever heard somebody talk about somebody who just died and they say, well, I, I don't know if he was prepared or not. Isn't that sad? It's just it's sad to have those kind of thoughts that a person might not be prepared as if that person could prepare themselves or be prepared by someone else. Everybody that be in glory one day will be there because they were prepared. But it was God who prepared them. Inherit the kingdom prepared from you, for you from the foundation of the world. This kingdom was prepared from the foundation of the world for a people that was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. The king speaks to them. Inherit the kingdom. That's eternal, you see. There was two thieves crucified with the Lord Jesus Christ. He was in the middle and one thief on both sides. When you read the gospel account, you'll find in Matthew and Mark where both these thieves railed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Both of them did. But then Luke gives us some additional information. In Luke's account, we find after they both had railed on the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the thieves rebuked the other one. And he says, this man has done nothing amiss. He says, but we get what we justly deserve. This man made a confession. This man says, we, you and I, get what we deserve. He is not. He's done nothing amiss. We're getting what we deserve. And then he turns to the Lord. He says, Lord, he says, when thou comest into thy kingdom, remember me. And the Lord said, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. What a beautiful illustration of the amazing, miraculous grace of God. Here's a man who's a thief. There's no question about it. He even admits that he has been a thief. He, he, he charges himself and the other thief with, with the wrongs they have done. And in the beginning, he was railing on the Lord Jesus Christ just like the other one. But then something took place, something happened that happens to every born-again child of God. To every heir of promise, every child of grace, sometime between, in their earthly life, between conception and death, the voice of the Son of God speaks and gives life. This man didn't ask for it. He didn't plead for it. He railed on Christ. But without question, Christ spoke in that life-giving voice. Read about it in John 5, 25. Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, the hour is coming now when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. And when he spoke life to this thief, that thief, my friends, then had a spirit within inside of him that he could condemn the other thief and himself, which basically confessed himself to be a great sinner, but also declaring the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. This man has done nothing amiss, and then said, Lord, when thou comest thy kingdom, remember me. And the Lord said, Today. Not tomorrow, not next week, not at some future time down the road, but this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. Paul says, For as in Adam all die, 
not died. This is D-I-E. Now, it is true in Adam, all mankind died. Romans 5.12 says so. Wherefore, but one man sinned in the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men for all his sin. But here he's talking about physical corporeal death. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Notice that. <laughs> for in Christ shall all be made But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Now, the law of firstfruits is important to understand here. The law of first fruit simply means when Israel gathered their crops and the very first that they gathered out of the field was the first fruits and they were to offer that to God. And if God accepted and God received it, then it made the entire crop sure that God would take it, you know, would take it in. But Christ, the first fruits, Christ arose from the dead not to die again. Every man in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, after they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end when he shall deliver up the kingdom to God. Then cometh the end. You know, you get through watching a movie, I very rarely ever see one anymore. But, you know, it's there, the last thing you see, the end. <laughs> There's an end. There's an end of sufferings. There's an end of sorrow. There's an end of afflictions. There's an end of problems. There's an end of confusion. There's an end of immorality. There's an end of corruption. The end. Then cometh the end. And what happens at the end? Then he shall he deliver up the kingdom. He's not bringing a kingdom down. He's not going to establish a kingdom when he comes. The kingdom is going up. If it's going up, it must already be in existence, you see. Then he delivers up the kingdom back to the Father, which he give it in the very beginning. Colossians 1, 12 and 13. Paul writes here, and it says, for you hath he translated, hath delivered us out of darkness, hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Delivered us from what? From darkness. Who delivered you from darkness? God did. Delivered you from darkness, has translated you into the kingdom of his dear son. Here's a kingdom you've been translated into. In contrast to a kingdom I'm going to speak to you about a little bit later on, Lord willing, that you're not translated into. When something is translated, what is being translated is always passive. Every time you read of a lesson of the new birth in the New Testament, you'll find where it teaches that what is being born again is passive. What is translated is passive. The translator is active, but what is translated is passive. And you've been translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. That's a passive work. Uh, rather, that's an active work of God on you who are passive in the work. Let me put it that way. You're passive in the work. That's eternal. Now let's go back to the words that came to the lips of John the Baptist. John comes preaching. And the first thing out of his lips is repent. <laughs> that's not the way to get your audience's attention in a glowing manner. The very first thing you say to him is repent because man by nature, he doesn't want to repent. He don't even realize he needs to repent to start with. But he's speaking to the Jewish people. says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This kingdom that Daniel spoke about, it's at hand now. This king that the prophet spoke about is coming. John the Baptist came to make ready a people prepared of the Lord. He came to make Israel ready and to identify the Son of God, which he did 
In John 1, 29, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Then Christ comes. Chapter 4. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then the Lord tells his apostles, after he chose 12 men out of his disciples, they're now the apostles of Christ, come to Matthew chapter 10, and he's going to give them a gospel commission. He tells them to go not. He, we found them all identified, all named here. He then tells them to go not in the way of the Gentiles, the way of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim unto them to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, the word kingdom of God is used by all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The kingdom of heaven is only used by Matthew. But the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew used it, they are interchangeable and basically the same thing. Just let you know that. So John the Baptist, Christ, and the apostles all began with the same message, the message of repentance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, let's notice what the kingdom of heaven is not. Okay? Now, we go back to Luke 17, verse 20, when the Pharisees demanded the Lord Jesus Christ when the kingdom of God should come. And Christ said, Unto them, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. You don't observe this kingdom. It's not outward. It's not physical. You don't have little landmarks and boundaries and one thing like earthly kingdoms have always had. This kingdom cometh not with observation. Rather, this kingdom is within you. This is an inward thing. This is a spiritual thing. It's what the Lord is, is telling those Pharisees. Of course, they couldn't understand such language as that. In Matthew chapter 13, the Lord begins teaching in parables. And this is how he started out with the seed of the sower. He said, have the seed, you know, the sower went out to sow seed. Some fell by the wayside. Some fell on stony ground. Some fell among thorns. And some fell on good ground. Now, here's four different conditions of soil, you might say, where seed fell, which represents the conditions of our heart. If you read all the accounts of Jesus giving this lesson of sowing of the seed, you'll find in the beginning they believed it, they received it, and they rejoiced in it, but only one category brought forth fruit. That's the last one. That's the very last one, the good soil. When he got through setting forth this parable without explanation, the disciples asked him a question. He says, why speaks them in parables? Now, how many times have you heard people tell you that a parable is something that you set forth to make something to be understood easier. You ever heard that? That's not true. The Lord here proves it. They said, why speak to them in parables? And the Lord replied, because unto you is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but unto them it is not given. He never intended for the multitudes to understand. That's kind of interesting to me. When you think about the theology of the world, you know that we got to you know, reach out. One thing, I'm all for reaching out. I'm, I'm all for evangelizing. I'm, I'm all for testifying and giving, being a witness for the things of God. Uh, we need to do a whole lot better job of that than we do. I can assure you that right now. Uh, we have a radio broadcast. We have great, Grace Alone, etc. Uh, you know, and we our website and streaming and, and the results of that's just been astonishing. I'm all for all of that. But the Lord spoke in parables so that only his disciples could understand it. 
And we find where the Lord one time prayed to the Father and says, Father, I thank you that you have hid these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them unto babes. Also, I repeat once again when he told his apostles where they were not to go. They were not to go among the Gentiles or the way of the Samaritans. They were only to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. If the gospel is vital, the Lord cut the Gentiles out. He cut the Samaritans out. He spoke deliberately in ways that the multitudes would not understand what he was saying. He thanked God that God had actually hid it from some, from the wise and the prudent, and only revealed it unto babes. Now those issues have to be dealt with. You just can't dismiss such statements as that and such remarks like that from the Lord without weighing your theology out against it. You have to do that if you're honest in your Bible study. So the Lord said the kingdom is not coming to observation. He said it's within inside of you. And now when he answered the disciples like he said, uh, you know, it's not given on them to know the mysteries. Notice there's mysteries concerning the kingdom of God. He launches into a series of parables. And parables aren't always the easiest things to be understood. But I can tell you this, their parables have to do with the reaction of the Jewish people to the coming of the Messiah and the judgment of God and also the characteristics of God's everlasting kingdom that he was establishing up in a manifest manner, in a manifest way, in a timely manner, in a timely way here. Now the Lord spoke to a small group of followers one time in Luke 12, 32. And he referred to them as a little flock. He said, fear not, little flock. I love the expression, fear not. It's found, I think, maybe over 300 times in the Bible. Both the Old Testament and New Testament. Every time you find that expression, fear not, the Lord will always tell you why you should not fear. Always remember that. You read that expression, fear not. Just read a little further. He'll tell you exactly why you shouldn't fear. He says, fear not, little flock. For it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, that little flock may not have had the riches of this world. That little flock may not have had political power. That little flock may have not had recognition. That little flock may not have had some of the great advantages that wealth and power and all these kind of things bring with it, but they had something far more valuable. The Lord said, fear not, little flock. Yeah, you're a little flock, but fear not, for it's the Father's good pleasure. It's his pleasure to give you something, to give you something, and he's going to give you the kingdom. Fear not, little flock. The Father's good pleasure to do this. There came a man to the Lord in the book of Mark. And he asked the Lord, he was a scribe, and he asked the Lord this question. He said, Lord, he says, what is the great commandment? And the Lord Jesus Christ said, the great commandment is love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy mind, and all thy strength. And to love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two laws hang all the commandments of God. Isn't that something? How God took all the commandments you find in the Old Testament, which is almost with, impossible to number of all, and he hung them on two commandments. The first one, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, all your might. And then to love your neighbor as yourself. That scribe replied, he says, Thou hast answered right, O Master. He says, For indeed, these two commandments embrace exactly what you said. A scribe was someone who searched the scriptures, you see. So he knew the Lord answered correctly. He said, Truth, Lord. <laughs> and the Lord didn't need him to confirm he spoke the truth. But that's, that's his reaction. He says, Truth, Lord. And then he kind of repeated what the Lord said. You know what the Lord said back concerning this man? When he saw that the man answered discreetly, 
That is, with some wisdom and understanding. When he answered discreetly, he said, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. So I hope you begin to get a picture of what I'm talking about here this morning. How far are you from the kingdom of God? How far was this man from the kingdom of God? Was he 100 miles away from the kingdom? Was he 50 miles away, 25 miles away, 10 miles away, a mile away? The Lord's not talking about distance here. The Lord's talking about understanding. He said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Oh, this man, he understood what the Lord had said here. He acknowledged the Lord spoke truth. He, he agreed with him. Of course, it didn't matter whether he agreed or didn't agree. The Lord always spoke truth, right? Thou art not far. What an interesting statement that is. Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. See, you can't measure this kingdom I'm talking about. It doesn't have any boundaries. It's got characteristics, but it doesn't have any boundaries. Remember the rich young ruler? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three record uh, the event where the Lord interacted with this rich young ruler. And I always think about this man here. He was young, uh, he was rich, he was a ruler, therefore he had authority. All the things the world says, boy, if you've got these things, you've got, that's it's the secret to happiness right here, you know. But there's all three of these things um, can leave you in a heartbeat. You may have riches today, they be gone tomorrow. You may be in power today and gone tomorrow. And you may have youth today, but over time you'll lose that as well. You will. You don't keep youth forever, do you? No, you don't. And this, this rich young ruler had a lot of possession. He came to the Lord with a question. When the Lord got through answering his question, you know, he, he, remember how he brought, brought him down from the, uh, from the standpoint that he listed all the commandments, except commandment number 10, which dealt with covetousness. Because his question was, what good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the Lord said, thou knowest the commandments. And he gave him commandments 6 through 9. And he said, with quite a bit of confidence, well, I've kept all these from my youth up. I, I tell you, that requires a lot of self-confidence, doesn't it? To say, I've kept all these from my youth. <laughs> Boy, he was an outstanding fellow then, I can tell you that. But the Lord said, well, now there's one that you don't measure up to. There's one that you lack. Uh, what is it? He said, go and sell what you got and give to the poor and come and follow me. He hit him right where his problem was in his pocketbook. Hit him right where his problem was. And the man went away very sorrowful. But in Mark's account, the Bible says the Lord and Jesus Christ loved this man. That tells me he was one of God's children. If he loved him, he was one of God's children. But he had his priorities out of place. And he wasn't willing to take the answer of the Lord and Jesus Christ and apply it to his life. And as he went away, the Lord made this statement. He said, how hardly shall a rich man enter into the what? The kingdom of God. Now, if that's eternal, the Lord said, if you've got riches, it's going to be mighty hard for you to make it. But that's not eternal. He's talking about the timely manifestation of God's kingdom here. The disciples were puzzled by this statement. So they questioned the Lord about it. And the Lord then gave a clarification. He said, how hardly shall they that trust in riches enter into the kingdom of heaven? Now I'll tell you, uh, I heard this not too long ago. And it just goes to show you, when you take things, you don't understand what you're reading or whatever and take it out of context how it can affect your behavior. Now remember what the Lord said. He said, how hard is how they that have riches enter into the kingdom of heaven? I heard the story about these two brothers who were bricklayers. And they were really good. And they'd brick a house and uh, get paid for it. 
And they'd, there'd be a long list of people wanting to come brick their house. They, they, they were so good at it. I mean, they had a long waiting list to go and brick houses, but they wouldn't go and brick another house till they spent all the money they made on the first house. You know why they wanted to spend all the money they made on the first house? Because they was afraid they'd get too many riches couldn't enter the kingdom of God. They were concerned if they died with riches in their pockets, they wouldn't make glory, in other words. Isn't that sad? So they wait till they almost spent everything they had, then they take on another house. They didn't break that house. And then they wouldn't break another house. They'd about spend all the money they had. They didn't want to accumulate anything. They didn't want to <laughs> save up anything because they didn't want to die with a bank full of money. Because the Lord said, How hardly shall they have riches <laughs> enter into the kingdom of God? I don't know if that story is true or not. I, I took it to be the truth. The man told it for the truth. Isn't that sad? Here's a kingdom, though, that this man did not enter into because the riches became an obstacle in his life. These riches became a hindrance to him. He was tied to them. He was married to them. It's all right to have riches as long as riches don't have you, as the old saying goes. You need to be rich in things that money can't buy. That's where you need to be really rich in, things that money cannot buy, you see. So here's this kingdom. How are we going to get into this kingdom? Well, over here in Luke's gospel, chapter 16, verse 32, the Lord Jesus Christ said, For the law and the prophets were until John. And since that time, the kingdom of heaven is preached, and every man presseth into it. Now, I spoke a while ago from a verse in Colossians chapter 1, how you're translated into a kingdom. You're not translated into this, this kingdom I'm talking about now. The kingdom is under consideration that I'm talking about right now, I believe is basically the gospel church, the gospel of our dear Lord and our dear Savior. When the Lord established his kingdom, he also established his church. He's the head of the church. He's the foundation of the church. He's Lord of lords and King of kings. And when you come to understand that salvation is of the Lord from first to last, from beginning to end, it's of the Lord and nothing else. It's not based upon you and your works and your righteousness. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. Uh, you can't uh, believe your way into it. You can't uh, repent your way into it. All those things are important. But you finally reach the point that you are a poor, weak, worthless, undone sinner in this world. And if salvation is not the Lord, salvation is not at all. That's what it comes down to and boils down to. This man was married to his riches. But the Lord said a man must press into it. And I believe we press into it with a desire in our heart to know the truth of salvation. To know the truth about ourselves and our condition. To know the truth about God, the truth about man, the truth about sin, the truth about redemption. The truth about justification, the truth about reconciliation. The truth about atonement. How is the atonement price paid? Who paid the atonement price? How do you have eternal redemption? How can you stand one day before God and be just in the sight of God? How can you stand there and God see you and you be just? Are you going to plead your works? Are you going to plead your life? Are you going to plead uh, all the things you did in life? Or are you going to plead the mercy and grace and the blood of Jesus Christ? I believe you're going to plead the mercy and grace of Christ, aren't you? People say, uh, you know, I, I just uh, believe I've got it made. I believe I've stacked up more good works than uh, I have the other, and I think I'm going to make it. I don't want to get into heaven on a think basis, brother. I can tell you that now. But here's what I, I'm not thinking, I'm knowing. 
I'm knowing if you're depending upon anything, if it were possible for you to uh, get in heaven one way or another based upon anything outside the blood of Christ, you're a goner. That's what it boils down to. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, when God sees you, he sees you through his son. If you get into this kingdom right here, rejoice as being uh, in the kingdom of our Savior. You have to press into it through prayer and the reading and studying the word of God and making an application of God's word in your life and being faithful and, you know, and devoted in the house of the Lord to fill your seat and honor the Lord and walk by faith. Those things will help you press into this kingdom that's under consideration here. The Lord told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to the Lord by night. He was a Jewish Pharisee. He said, Master, we know no man can do the miracles thou doest except he be sent of God, if he be of God. And the Lord replied to Nicodemus. He said, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To see the kingdom I'm talking about requires experiencing the new birth. You've got to have spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear. That's why the Lord went ahead and told his disciples, he says, there's been many in times past who desire to see the things you see and they have not seen. Hear the things that you hear and have not heard. He said, you've got hearing ears, you've got seeing eyes, you see and hear things that people in times past desire to see and hear and they did not, but you do hear them and you do see them. If you understand something, what I'm saying here this morning, if you believe with all your heart that your salvation is in Jesus Christ and Him alone, nothing can be added to it, nothing can be taken away from it. When Jesus died upon Calvary's cross, He took all your sins, the sins of His family, on, on his, in His own body to the tree of the cross, and there He put them away as far as the east is from the west. He put them into the land of forgetfulness. He says, Your sins are iniquities, I will remember no more. Aren't you happy about that? Aren't you glad the Lord's not going to remember them? How many times have you seen people get cross one with another and finally get to the point where one asks for forgiveness and the other person forgives, I'll forgive you, but I'm not forgetting it. Boy, that's, that's not genuine repentance and genuine forgiveness. I tell you that now. But I do preach to you and God here this morning that's never going to remember your sins and iniquities anymore. Because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sins. The blood of our Savior washes your sins away from you. The blood of our Savior, my friends, is the only cleansing agent there is that will bring you into glory someday because all your sins have been washed away in the blood of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven, the law and the prophets were to John. John was the last prophet. And according to Jesus in the book of... Uh, Matthew 11, 11, he was the greatest prophet. When he came to John, here's what the Lord said to John about John. He said, man that's born of woman, of all men born of women, there's not been a greater born than John the Baptist. Now John didn't feel that way. John was a man clothed in humility. This is what the Lord said about him. It's one thing for the Lord to say something about you. It's another thing for you to say something about yourself. John didn't say this. The Lord said it. He said it about John. He said, but he that's least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. There will be benefits, there will be blessings that people in the kingdom receive that John never did. John was a kind of a bridge between the old and the new. He was the last prophet, but the greatest prophet. <laughs> uh, 
you know, the law and the prophets were unto John. But since that time, something now has been established called the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. I'm not looking for a kingdom to be established down the road in the future. I believe with all my heart I'm in the kingdom today. I'm here uh, where King Jesus is. You're where King Jesus is. You're here where the, the king speaks, brother. And Solomon said, where the, vo- the word of a king, there is power. Now, in the book of 1 Corinthians 4 and 20, Paul says, for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 and 4 and 5, he said, brother, knowing therefore, your, uh, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not in word only, but it came in power. It came in the Holy Ghost. It came in much assurance. In the kingdom of heaven, in God's blessed church here on this earth, it operates on the power of God, operates on the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot sing with the Spirit and understanding. You cannot sing making melody in your heart to the Lord without the power of Almighty God. It's the power that put it in your heart to begin with in regeneration. It's the power of the Spirit that lifts your mind and heart from the things of this world that you might make melody in your heart and sing with praise in your heart to the Lord. Men cannot pray fervent spiritual prayers outside the power of the Holy Spirit. And brother, I'm telling you this morning, men cannot preach God's everlasting gospel unless they're called of God and are blessed with the power of the Holy Spirit of God. That's the difference in lecturing and preaching the gospel or just teaching and preaching. I believe all preaching is teaching, but not all teaching is preaching. And when a man's blessed to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, it ought to come to you in the power and the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. Aren't you, are you interested in assurance today? Are you interested in assurance? Let's go to the book of 2 Peter just for a moment. In the first chapter, Peter tells us to add some things to our faith. It's important you understand. He never said one thing about adding faith to your life. He said, you got faith, but here's some things to add to it. And you add six things to it, the seventh being charity itself. He says, now, knowing, brethren, he said, uh, uh, giving all diligence, brethren, to add these things in your life, and those who do these things, they shall never fall. But he says, but an opening shall be opened unto them into the everlasting kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, brother, make your calling and election sure. Who are you going to make it sure to? You going to make it sure to God? You think God's unsure about anything? <laughs> Do you think God's unsure who belongs to him? Thank God he's not. You think God's unsure of what's going on in this world? I tell you, he's not. You think God is unsure when he's going to bring all these things to an end, I can assure you he's not. I don't preach about an unsure God. I preach about a sure God. And Paul tells Timothy, the foundation of God has this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. But I need to make my calling and election sure by adding these things and pressing myself into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to be, I tell you, that man was not far from the kingdom. I don't want to be just a short way from the kingdom. I want to be in the kingdom. I, I love kingdom living, don't you? <laughs> I love kingdom living. I love being able to come to the king's table. You know, when King David was ruling and reigning, he brought a man to his table named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the grandson of Saul, his arch enemy. Mephibosheth was a cripple. Mephibosheth, uh, uh, you know, was a son of Jonathan. And David remembered his covenant he made with Jonathan. And he went and set John, uh, Mephibosheth and brought Mephibosheth to the table. Now, think about it. He brought him to the table. Well, the Lord's got a table. In Luke chapter 22, the Lord says, I, As my Father appointed me a kingdom, so I appoint unto you a kingdom. 
that you might come and sit and eat at my table in my kingdom. Have you, have you had that experience to eat at the table of King Jesus? Jonathan did. Jonathan couldn't, have made, couldn't, couldn't believe it. When he first got there, he felt like David, no doubt, was going to put him in prison or maybe even take his life because his grandfather had pursued him for over 10 years throughout all the wilderness to take his life. But God and his marvelous providence prevented from happening. But this man, Mephibosheth, came to the table. He was crippled. His feet were underneath the table where they could not be seen. Aren't you glad about that? You know, you know you still got your old carnal nature, don't you? you, you I don't have to tell you that, do I? Do I have to remind you you still got your carnal nature? I don't think so. Uh, you probably already experienced some of it this morning before you ever got here. I'm sure I cannot, don't have to remind you that you still got your carnal nature. You still got your infirmities. You still got your frailties. You still got your weaknesses. You still got your problems in life. But for a few minutes, brother, on the Lord's day, when you come to the house of God, you can come and sit at the table of King Jesus. And all them things are hid under the table there. You just sit there and you eat with Jesus. You fellowship with Jesus. Uh, you know, based upon your goodness and your mercy, I mean, your goodness and righteousness, but based upon the mercy and the grace and the love of God that he's had for you all along life's journey. Wherefore seeing, or wherefore receiving, presently, now, a kingdom that cannot be moved. There's only one kingdom, I can tell you that, that would be described this way. Wherefore receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace. The book of Hebrews is a book of lettuce. If you like salad, you'll love Hebrews. The word lettuce, that is, let us, two words, is mentioned 13 times. 13 chapters, 13 heads of lettuce in the book of Hebrews. Let us have what? Let us have grace. For what reason? That we might serve thee acceptably with reverence and godly fear. That's to be our spirit and our attitude that we come to the house of God recognizing this is a place where King Jesus lives and reigns. This place where the Son of God established His church on this earth. Here's the place where we come and we would come with reverence and godly fear. And to do that, He says, let us have grace. Brother, uh, if, you didn't, you, if you hadn't already been touched by the grace of God in your heart, you're not worried about having grace. If you're asking for grace because grace has already found you. Let us have grace for what? That we might serve God acceptably. I want my service to God to be acceptable. I want my worship to God to be acceptable. I want God to be pleased with the worship. I want uh, the worship in a manner and way. If Jesus came walking in that door today, he'd be pleased with it. He'd feel right at home, right here. He, he would feel pleased with what's going on in the simplicity of the worship service with the songs of praise and effectual fervent prayers going up and the proclamation of Jesus Christ in a manner and way that honors and praises the Savior and brings comfort and edification to the people of God here. Wherefore, receiving a kingdom, let us have this grace. We need this grace every single day. As Paul said, let's come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need.